Church. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you could, grab your Bibles, turn them open to Ephesians chapter 3. That would be fantastic. If you're new with us tonight, just know that our ordinary practice is just to walk through books of the Bible. And so we've been doing that with the book of Ephesians under a series titled Church. God's grace made invisible. One of our initiatives for 2019 as we press deeper and deeper into this year is to fall in love with being the church all over again by embracing God's vision for his people in the world and running with it. And the book of Ephesians helps us do that very, very well as the church is, is uh, one of the biggest themes of this letter. So Ephesians chapter 3, you may have heard as Courtney was reading the passage for us a moment ago, uh, a certain word that kept popping up over and over and over again, and it actually shows up about three times, and it's a key word to understanding this passage, and it's the word mystery. Now, understanding words and phrases and concepts, in order to do so, context is really, really important. That context is needed for to understand what a word means or what a concept means or what a phrase is really getting after. For example, if if you and I were in the grocery store and I looked at you and I said, don't you grab two bags? You would say, okay, paper or plastic. And you would go grab one, preferably paper, and bring those to me for us to use. How, but that phrase, grab me two bags, means something entirely different on a baseball field. Uh, if you say that on a baseball field, it means leg out a double. It means hit the ball hard and run as fast as you can. Do not stop until you get to second base. Context is key when understanding words and phrases. And that's especially important as we think about this word mystery. Because as we think about what mystery is and what mystery means, some of us have an understanding of what mystery is, and we have to be very careful that we do not impose our understanding of mystery upon what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 3. For example, some of you, when you heard the word mystery, you hear that word in our culture and in our context, you think of something that needs to be solved. You think of novels and literature, uh, perhaps one of the most popular forms of, of, of fictional writing in our country is the mystery thriller section. It's always it ranks in the top five of the most popular books being sold across our country. My daughter Delaney has picked up on this, which is why Boxcock Children is her favorite little book. So I'm constantly kicking and stumbling over those books in the morning, especially when I walk into her room, she'll fall asleep reading and the book will fall out of her loft bed and onto the floor and I'll kick it or stub my toe on it as I'm going in there in the morning. She loves mysteries because she's intrigued by this idea that there is a problem that needs to be solved. Our culture loves this understanding of mysteries. This is why Law and Order SVU has been playing on TV for like 50 years. It's just constantly on the tube. This is why Making of a Murderer is so popular on Netflix. This is why True Detective is so intriguing by those who subscribe to HBO and they follow that show. It's this idea of mystery, something that needs to be solved. But if we take that understanding of what a mystery is and we apply it to this passage or we apply it to Christianity, uh, we're going to really miss it. Because all of a sudden we're going to think God is a problem that we must solve. And we're going to adopt a Sherlock Holmes form of spirituality. We're going to Da Vinci Code the Bible so that we start reading between the lines, trying to discover and reconcile all the different mysteries and things that we can't quite solve in the scriptures. And, and we'll be worshiping Jesus or worshiping God. We'll just be investigating him. And we'll be putting him under the, uh, I can't think of the name of the glass that Sherlock Holmes used. What's it called? Magnifying glass. Really? I was thinking 
Yeah, well, a magnifying glass and, and approach God that way and, a, and that kind of puts us above him and not beneath him. That's, that's something we certainly don't want to do. And so sometimes, some of you, when you heard the word mystery, you thought of a problem that needs to be solved. But then in some of us, when you heard that word mystery, you didn't think in that direction. You thought about something that is unknowable. That a mystery is something that we cannot really know. And this is one of the hallmarks, quite frankly, of postmodern spirituality. Postmodern spirituality loves mystery as defined in that way. And when we take that understanding and we approach it to Christianity, we start buying into some really unhealthy ideas about who God is. And we'll think that he is unknowable, that we can't know him truly, that we can't know him really. And if we impose that upon God, if that's our understanding of what a mystery is, we can't have a real relationship with him. And we'll miss the whole point of how God created us and wired us in his image, designing us so that we could know him and we could walk with him and we could fellowship with him. We can know him truly. So we don't want to take mystery and interpret it or apply it in that postmodern kind of way. That postmodern spirituality that says it's something that is unknowable. And, and to be honest with you, I think there's some of us, perhaps in this room today, that kind of likes that definition because we find a lot of comfort in ambiguity. We take comfort in ambiguity because if something isn't clear, if something isn't known, then it can't really lay a claim on your life. And it can't really cause you to make commitments and choices that correspond with it. If something is unknowable, if life is just full of ambiguity and we can't know God truly, then we don't really have to commit to him, do we? We don't have to pick a lane. And so we, some of us just kind of rest in ambiguity and we ignore the clarity of the scriptures and what God has revealed therein. And so we want to think well about this word mystery. Well, the word mystery, as Paul's using it in this passage, isn't something that needs to be solved and it isn't something that needs, that, that is unknowable. When he uses that word mystery in this passage, he's talking about a reality that you and I could never dream up ourselves. He's talking about something that's so beyond the human imagination that, that if you and I were to ever write the gospel, or, to, or that you and I could never write the gospel or script the gospel. It is so beyond the human imagination. It is so beyond the way that you and I are wired to think and wired to interact with the world it is. that if God doesn't reveal it to us, we could never know it. It's something that the human, no human being could ever come up with on their own. So if you, were, if you were to sit down, if you were tasked to write a story, and you're to write a story about how the world can be made right, how lives can be made whole again, how the universe could be fixed and redeemed, you're never going to come up with a story that God wrote. You're never going to come up with the gospel. This is the mystery that Paul is getting after. It's this thing that we, it's so beyond our human imagination that if God hadn't revealed it, we would never know it and we would never come up with it. And so this mystery that Paul is talking about here is this, the mystery of God's grace, the mystery of God's gospel that he has revealed. Check it out in verse 1. The mystery of grace revealed. It says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's reminding his readers that he is in prison as he is uh, writing this letter. And, and so he's suffering. He doesn't know what his future holds. And so he moves down this line. He says, for this reason. And then he introduces himself or kind of reintroduces himself to his readers. But then you may notice that there's a line at the end of verse 1 just before verse 2. 
And at that point, we begin to discover that Paul, as he's thinking about where he is and, and who he is in relationship to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish peoples, he begins to digress. And he takes a diversion in verse 2 that takes him away from his original train of thought that he will pick back up in verse 14, which is why when you drop down to verse 14, you have for this reason set again. So as Paul's kind of working through this letter and he's likely dictating it to another guy who's pinning it for him, who's writing it down. And so he has this thought, he's about to voice a prayer for the church, and then that thought just kind of kickstarts this digression and he moves in the direction of the mystery of grace and the mystery of the gospel. And that's what two verses two through thirteen are is all about. So you have this digression beginning in verse two. You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace? That he gave to me for you. The mystery, there's the word, was made known to me by revelation, as I briefly, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. There's the word again. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so he takes this digression to talk about mystery. And if we're going to understand what Paul is getting after with what this mystery is, we have to think about three threads. There are three threads that are woven together and should not be separated from each other if we're going to understand the mystery of grace revealed. We're going to understand this remarkable reality that you and I could have never dreamt of or thought of on our own. And the first thread that you find in this ministry of in this mystery is the thread of a crucified Christ. It's the thread of a crucified Christ, a Messiah, a Savior, who would come into the world and he would be crucified on the cross. This is what he's getting after when he alludes to the things that he has mentioned briefly. If you jump back to chapter 2, you look at verse 13. There he talks about the crucified Christ, what Jesus did for us. It says in verse 13, that now in Christ Jesus... You who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that the crucifixion of Christ did something to bring us near to God. And so this mystery concerns a Christ who was crucified. Now, this was a foreign concept. Nobody anticipated the Messiah, the Savior, the one that was prophesied and anticipated all throughout the Old Testament, who was going to come and rescue and redeem us. Nobody, nobody tied the Christ to a cross. People were not thinking in that direction. The first century Jewish people, they were looking for the Messiah, but they assumed the Messiah would come in power, and he would come with might, and he would come to conquer, conquer Israel's most immediate enemies, who they thought were their biggest enemies. That was the Roman Empire, who were occupying the land and oppressing the people. So they were waiting for a militant Messiah. That's the category that people had in their thinking when they would dream of and, and hope for the Messiah. And so when you get this man from Nazareth named Jesus walking around with his disciples and he's performing great miracles and wonders and, and he's teaching with great authority and people are flocking to his influence, they were thinking, okay, well maybe this guy is the one who's going to deliver us from the Romans. And, and then Jesus would say, hey guys, I want you to know I'm going to go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to die on the cross. And he kept talking about the cross, and it would frustrate his hearers because his hearers did not want to think about that being the fate of the Messiah or the Christ. And on more than one occasion, Peter would step up and say, no, Jesus, that could never happen. 
we believe you to be the Christ. You can't go to Jerusalem and die, and yet that's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. That the Christ came to be crucified on the cross because he wasn't coming simply to liberate the nation of Israel from Roman oppression. He was coming to atone for the sins of all of his people. He was coming to die so that we might be brought near in relationship with God so we could know God. And so you have the crucified Christ. And when you think about that, the mystery of the crucified Christ, that gives way to what we could say is a law-free gospel. The beauty of this this mystery, a law-free gospel. Again, look back at chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For he, referring to Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. Get this, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. A law-free gospel that Jesus' death on the cross fulfilled the law in such a way that it was no longer binding on people like you and I. And this was a remarkable revelation. This was an incredible mystery that God has revealed, this law-free gospel. And and we have to think well about this, because nowhere in the Bible will you ever hear the Ten Commandments or something like the Golden Rule. You'll never hear those aspects of the Scriptures described as a type of mystery. And the reason why the Ten Commandments and the golden rule, some of those some of those realities that, that that are a part of the human conscience, the reason why those things aren't referred to as a mystery is because they're not very mysterious. The law and the golden rule are things that can come out of kind of human living and human interaction. There's a reason why echoes of the Ten Commandments and echoes of the golden rule appear in every culture and in every religion and the world. It's all part of who God made us to be as he created us in his image. So the law, or think specifically about aspects of the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rules, never referred to as a mystery because those are the types of things that you and I could have come up with. In fact, that's what we do when we talk about how to draw near to God, how to know God, how to be saved or go to heaven or be redeemed. We, we usually employ the language of law to do that. And so we buy into this lie that says, well, if I'm going to be accepted by God, then I must be a good person. And if I am a good person, then God will bless me. And if I am a good person, then God will bless me, and then I will go to heaven and be with him when I die. That's a lawful gospel. That's the instinct of the world in which we live. That's where the human heart gravitates towards. And so when Paul steps on the scene, he says, look, I want, I want all people everywhere to know that their relationship with God isn't dependent upon what they do and how well they do it. But it is dependent upon what Jesus has done for them. That was a radically new message. That was a message of grace. That was a law-free gospel. So that all of a sudden, Paul could go to non-Jewish people and say, hey, you want to know the Messiah? Put your faith in him. Just put your faith in Jesus and you can know God. You can experience salvation. He didn't go to the non-Jewish people and said, hey, you want to know the Messiah? Well, then you've got to get circumcised. Sorry, fellas. He didn't go to the world and say, if you want to know the Messiah, if you want to know God, well, then you have to adopt a certain diet. He didn't take the regulations of the law and try to cross cultures with them because God in his wisdom knew that crossing cultures with law would turn people into it, would, would confuse the beauty of God, the ethnic diversity that was filling out the earth. 
But if God comes up with a law of free gospel, a salvation that comes by grace through faith, and all of a sudden that simplifies the equation, and that allows God's saving, redeeming activity to cross cultures in a way that cannot be hindered by culture, or hindered by ethnic identity, or hindered by all the things that tend to hinder us from interacting with one another in the world that is. And so the beauty of this mystery is a crucified Christ, which gives way to a law-free gospel. And when you have a law-free gospel, that brings us to the third thread of this mystery. When you have a law-free gospel, all of a sudden you have an equal people. You have an equal people. This is why verse 6 kind of comes to a crescendo about this mystery that has been revealed. And Paul says, this mystery concerns Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, becoming co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. An equal people in the church. That these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, did not have to become Jewish in order to know Jesus. They could just know Jesus. And they came into the church, God brought these different ethnicities, these different cultures into the church in Christ, and they stood shoulder to shoulder. No one was standing over anyone, no one was standing under anyone. That was the beauty of the gospel, that was the beauty of the church. This made the church the most remarkable and radical community in all of the world. And if we listen to the gospel, the church is going to become the most remarkable and radical community in all of the world at all times. Because the church is the place where human beings of different ethnicities and different cultures and different backgrounds, all types of external differences, people might come together and find equality in Christ. And stand shoulder to shoulder in community recognizing that we are one in Jesus, that we are saved by grace. And so what separated us outside of Christ separate us no more. That's the beauty of the church. That's the remarkable Target and really goal of this mystery that God has revealed to Paul and he's given to us in the gospel. But then notice what happens in verse 7 as Paul's thinking about this mystery and how it has been revealed to him and he's loving the Gentiles, he's going towards them in obedience to Jesus to tell them this message, to let them know that they are saved by grace, not through works or through any other type of cultural conformity, saying we are saved by sheer grace alone. And then notice verse 7, he begins to talk about the difference that is made and how he approaches his purpose in this world. Notice verse 7. He says, I was made a servant of this gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. I love what Paul is saying there because he's saying, look, if this grace, if this gospel, if this rescued me and if saved me, then that's what I'm going to serve. That's what I'm going to give my life to. And this is what happens when you become a Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus and you experience the grace of the gospel, all of a sudden you are energized by the reality of the gospel. You are energized by the grace of God so that you become a servant of this gospel. And the gospel then begins to fill out your purpose. It begins to give you perspective so that you can live your life meaningfully in the world that is. Paul says, I'm saved by this gospel, and if that's true, I'm a servant of this gospel. And there's something there for us, because every human being is just bent and wired in such a way where we're going to serve whatever we believe saves. Whatever you believe will save your life. That's what you're going to give yourself to. That's what you're going to serve all the days of your life. If you believe morality 
morality is what saves you, you are going to serve morality all the days of your life. If you believe that alcohol is going to save you because it rescues you from the feelings of mundane and the feelings of disappointment and dissatisfaction that you are encountering in this world, and you are going to serve alcohol all the days of your life, and you're going to serve it so much that it begins to take over, and that's when things really begin to go sideways in our lives. We serve whoever saves. Think about it this way, politically. Who you vote for. It's dependent upon who you believe, who, whatever politician or policy you believe would save you or bring you to some type of awareness of, of heaven on earth. What's going to lift you in this world? What's going to lift the people that you love in this world? You're going to vote accordingly. Why? Because we serve whatever we believe will save. And this is what Paul is reminding us of in verse 7. I'm saved by this gospel. <coughs> Therefore, I am a servant of this gospel. And then picking up in verse 8, he begins to talk about this energy, this the power of the gospel that's, that's enabling him to live a life of purpose and passion. This, this gospel of grace that is consuming his affections and his attention, his time and his energy. He's living his life according to this reality. And so he begins to move in verse 8 to talking about the energy or the power of grace that has been poured into his life. At the end of verse 7, he uses the word power. The word power there means to energize. That God's grace is what's getting him up in the morning. God's grace is what has him doing the things that he's doing each and every day. Grace is energizing and empowering his life. It's given him purpose. And I pray that this is what each and every one of us would experience that we would find ourselves rescued and saved by grace. And then we would eagerly identify as servants of grace. That the grace of God would be what wakes us up in the morning. The grace of God is what energizes our interactions with people throughout the day. The grace of God is why we spend our money the way that we spend it. It's why we do the things that we do. The grace of God energizing everything about us. There are three things specifically that I think... That Paul that empowers Paul and that should empower us in, in this passage. The first is this: that God's grace empowers us to serve as stewards. That God's grace empowers us to serve as stewards. I get this earlier in verse two. Paul used that word administration. The word administration is also translated stewardship. He's saying God's grace is is empowering me to serve as a steward. He's saying, God's grace has given me such a remarkable understanding of what life is all about. God's grace has brought me into the reality of a relationship with God. I want to steward that grace. That means I don't want that grace to stick with me. I don't want to be a sponge just soaking up the realities of the gospel. I want to be a funnel, which means I want God's grace to be poured into my life. And I want God's grace to flow through my life. I want to steer it and steward it in such a way so that other people can experience it and be affected by it. So we serve as stewards empowered by the grace of God. Now, God's grace empowers us to serve in a couple of ways. On one hand, God's grace empowers us by qualifying us to serve. God's grace qualifies us to serve. If you look at verse 8, there's a phrase there that Paul uses in reference to himself. He he calls himself the least of all the saints. He says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. See, Paul was ne never forgot who he was before Jesus. He 
never forgot why he needed the grace of God. If you're familiar with Paul's story, you know this. If, if you're new to Christianity or you're new to the Bible, you may not know this. But before this guy, Paul, became a Christian, before he met Jesus, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a religious zealot that served a particular tribe of the Jewish people that wanted to stomp out the church. They did not like the fact that men and women were worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. They did not like the fact that the gospel was crossing ethnic, cultural, and religious barriers. And so they wanted to put a stop to it. And Paul was kind of the hired henchman. He was the one leading the charge. And he would travel throughout the known world trying to do that. Silence the gospel, stomp out Christians. But then one day as Paul's walking literally in the direction to do just that, Jesus shows up. And Jesus revealed himself to him, turned his life around. And so when Paul began to follow Jesus, wondering how is it that I am able and I've been given the privilege to serve Jesus with my life when I spent so much time causing Jesus' people to suffer? How does my script get flipped where one day I'm a persecutor of the church and the next day I'm an apostle of the church? I'm a servant of the church. How, how does that happen? Well, for Paul, it was because God's grace. That God's grace qualified him to serve. And God's grace qualifies you to serve. You see, some of you sell yourself short. You think your past sin, you think the, the jacked up areas of your life disqualify you from being a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. But if we're hearing this passage rightly and we're thinking well about all, nothing is further from the truth. So don't sell yourself short, or better yet, don't sell the grace of God short. It is the grace of God that qualifies us to serve. You can be upfront and honest about the passions in your heart and the ways that you want to see Jesus move and the ways that you want to serve Jesus with your life. You don't have to be ashamed of those passions and desires due to the sin or due to the things that characterized your life before Jesus. God's grace empowers us to serve as stewards by qualifying us. But not only does God's grace qualify us, God's grace equips us. I love this dynamic of the book of Ephesians. If you turn one page over in your Bibles into chapter 4, you drop down to verse 7. Paul talks about grace there, but he's talking about how God's grace equips him and equips every Christian to serve. Listen to what he says in verse 7. It says, Now grace... This energizing power, this incredible kindness that God has given to us and shown us in Jesus, this grace was given to each one of us, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he's going to go down in a passage and he's going to talk about different ways God gives different people to serve the church. Seeing not only does God's grace, not only does it qualify us, it equips us. And his friend Peter would say something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beginning of verse 10, listen to this, a passage you saw a moment ago. Just as each one, that is each Christian, has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He's saying God's grace equips us to serve. Now, one of the ways that you can think about this as it relates to your life is that when you become a Christian, God in His grace is able to take the raw material
details of your life and redeem them for his purposes. The raw materials of your life, that is the talents you were born with, the passions that have characterized your journey through this world, the affinities that you have, the things that you enjoy, your hobbies, your interests, the experiences that you have had in your life. You bring all of that into your relationship with Jesus. And when you become a Christian, God in His grace starts redeeming the raw materials of your life. He takes your talents, your passions, your skills, your experiences, and He repurposes them. He steers them towards the service of others. He employs them and enlists them into the service of His gospel. So that you can live your life saying, God, I want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the ways that you begin to see how God may be equipping you to serve him in his kingdom or in his church, you can think about, okay, what bothers you about the world that you live in? What bothers you about the state of the world right now? What really just grieves you or saddens you or burdens you? You can think about, okay, what is the disconnect between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world? Where is Jesus' reign and his rule not being realized around me, not being realized in the city of Seattle? And pull that thread and then start following that thread, and you may discover ways in which God has equipped you uniquely and equipped you supernaturally to serve others in this world and to see the kingdom of God appear on earth as it is in heaven. God's grace empowers us to serve as stewards. And it qualifies us, it equips us. But then there's a second dynamic to this to this passage. Not only does God's grace empower us in that direction, God's grace empowers us to, this may surprise you, God's grace empowers us to suffer as saints. It empowers us to suffer as saints. Let me explain that. Look at verse 1. Remember, Paul has talked about, he's referred to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then you drop down to verse 13, and there's another reference there to Paul's suffering. He says, so then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, this may surprise you because some of you have a misunderstanding about what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a saint. You think, okay, well, if I'm a Christian, and if I'm a good Christian, then God is going to protect me from suffering. And if I am suffering, it's probably because I've been disobedient. If I am suffering, I've fallen out of favor with God so that God no longer accepts me. He no longer wants me. He no longer loves me. And so you begin to interpret your sufferings as God's judgment upon you. But if you are a saint in Christ, God's judgment will never fall upon you. Because we believe that God's judgment fell on Jesus. So all we ever know as we journey through this world is grace. But God's grace doesn't exempt us from suffering in this world. God's grace empowers us to suffer as saints. Now there's a lot that can be said about this, but what's specific in this passage is that Paul is suffering because he loves people. He is suffering as a saint because he loves the Gentiles. He loves people, and he's in prison because he loved them. He's in prison because he sought to serve them with the gospel. I'll show you in Acts chapter 21. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the book of Acts kind of tells the story of Christianity, how the church was birthed in the world. And it showcases how the church grew and began to spread throughout the known world. You get to Acts chapter 21, and Paul features as a 
declared in that book. A lot of it is his story and what God did in and through his life. When you get to Acts chapter 21, I want you to hear what goes down. Acts 21 verse 27, it says, When the seven days were nearly over, that's referring to a festival or a feast that was taking place in that city. It says, Some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple. That's Paul. They noticed Paul. And listen what happens. It stirred up, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. Shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches, get this, who teaches everyone everywhere. He wants everyone everywhere to know the gospel. Everyone everywhere to know about this mystery that God has revealed. So he's given his life to it. He's teaching everyone everywhere. But this is what they're saying. He's teaching them against our people, against our law, and against this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks, that is, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. The reason Paul is suffering in Ephesians, and the reason he's in prison while writing that book is because he loved people. He wanted God's grace to be made known among all people. So he is suffering in the service of others. That's what saints do. That's what men and women in Christ do. We suffer in the service of others because we love people. And we want people to know the grace of God. So we put ourselves in vulnerable positions to let them know. It's hard to share the gospel with people. People don't always respond positively. Sometimes they recoil and they react with animosity and rejection. But we go for it and we put ourselves out there because we love people, and God's grace is empowering us to suffer as saints, that is, to suffer in the service of people we love. I'm reminded of a Russian novelist, Dostoevsky, who said famously one day that, you know, to love is to suffer. To love is to suffer, and there can be no love otherwise. He's saying we can't really love without suffering. So if we're going to be servants of the loving God, servants of the grace of God, servants of the gospel of God, then that will lead us to suffer, but but we're going to suffer as saints, empowered by the grace of God, so that when things around us start falling apart, we're constantly interpreting ourselves in relationship to Jesus. Paul doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't refer to himself as a prisoner of the Jewish religious zealots that seized him that day in the city. No, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Everything that occurs in my life is about Jesus, even my sufferings. And I trust Jesus enough to know that if I'm in here, there's reason, there's purpose, there's redemptive activity taking place. So he tells his readers, I'm suffering for you. Don't be discouraged. Instead, know that my sufferings are for your glory. I'm suffering so that you guys could have heard the gospel and come to believe in Jesus and come to know this grace. This is how grace empowers us to suffer as saints. And then lastly, God's grace empowers us to shine as the church. This is where this passage gets so powerful for us as a church. God's grace empowers us to shine as the church. Notice what happens in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul refers to this eternal purpose. He says, all of this is according to his, that is God's eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is the second time Paul has referred to God's eternal purpose in this book. The first time was earlier in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 
you might turn back one page in your Bible and check out just to remind yourself of what Paul said there. But in chapter 1, verse 9, listen to what he says. He says that God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, as a plan for the right time. And here it is, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. He's saying this is God's eternal purpose. It's to bring everything into harmony, everything into cohesion, everything into unity in Christ. And this is, this is comprehensive. This is a cosmic description. Everything in the universe is going to find itself harmonized in Christ, celebrating the reality of who Jesus is. But here in chapter 3, he takes that purpose and he applies it in a more narrow way. He kind of chisels off a certain aspect of this eternal purpose of God. Now, to understand what's going on, you have to understand the type of world that you live in. I'm sure all of you know this, that we live in a world where harmony and cohesion and unity just doesn't happen. We live in a world that is fractured by the fall. We live in a world that is frustrated by sin, and we know this socially. I mean, people don't get along. People do not get along with each other. Cultures clash, nations war. We don't have unity and harmony in the world that is as it relates to how we relate to one another as human beings in this world. But you can also think about this personally. Just think about your body. Your body is not experiencing cohesion and harmony. You may be healthy right now, but one day your body is going to start to fall apart. This is what disease is. This is what death ultimately is. It's disintegration. It's everything falling apart. It's the fracture of the fall. This is the type of world that we live in. But the good news of God's eternal purpose is that Jesus is going to flip the script on that. Jesus is going to bring cohesion back. Jesus is going to bring harmony back. Jesus is going to restore everything that is falling apart in the world, including your bodies. This is why after Jesus died on the cross, he resurrected from the grave. And Paul would say, this Jesus, this is resurrection, is the first fruit of what is to come. That Jesus stepped out of the grave to show you and I where our lives are heading in him. That one day we're going to resurrect. One day we're going to be given new whole bodies that aren't affected by sin, that won't suffer, that won't be stricken by disease, and certainly will not die. That's the future we have in Christ as it relates to our bodies. But there's more. You also think about this unity, this cohesion, this harmony that Jesus is bringing. It involves the relationships that human beings have with one another. And so the question becomes, if this is true, if this is what God is up to, if this is God's eternal purpose, if he's going to harmonize everything and bring everything into cohesion in Christ, if that's God's eternal purpose, how is that eternal purpose made known to the watching world right now? Where is it to be seen? Where is it to be made evident? And this is where you jump into verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 3. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom, his multifaceted wisdom, may now be made known through the church. He's saying if you want to know what God is all about, if you want to know what God is up to in the universe, the first place you look is to the church. Because it is in the church where relationships are being reconciled. It's in the church where races are coming together as one to worship Jesus. It's in the church where God's eternal purpose is put on display. This is why a guy by the name of F.F. Bruce would say the church appears as God's pilot plan for the reconciled universe of the future. 
believe it or not, this is who we are as the church. We are God's pilot plan for the future reconciliation of the entire universe. I don't know if that what that does to you, but I hope it elevates your understanding of what it means to belong to a local church. I hope it elevates your understanding of what it means to promote unity in the body of Christ. I hope it elevates your understanding of what it means to, to sink into communities so where you are knowing real people and real people are knowing you. I hope it elevates your understanding of what it means to stand shoulder to shoulder with other sinners saved by grace, rallying around Jesus, understanding that the reconciliation, the healing of relationships that is happening in the church, that's designed to show the world what God's eternal purpose is all about. That we are the pilot plan of what God is doing harmonize and to unify all of reality in Christ. This is a remarkable, a remarkable revelation about the importance of the church. But he's not just talking about this being made known to the world. If you look back at verse 10, there's a second part of that verse, and he talks about this being made known to a couple of people or a couple of groups. He says, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavens. Now, in the book of Ephesians, rulers and authorities always refers to demons and Satan. Spiritual forces that are hostile to God and that are hostile to the eternal purposes of God. He's saying, look, when people come together to worship Jesus in the world that is, that delivers a message not only to the rest of the world, it delivers a message to the rest of reality so that hostile spiritual forces that have opposed God and stand against everything that God is about, those forces are going to be put to shame by you and I loving one another in the church, by you and I celebrating Jesus together in the church. That's where God's manifold wisdom, his brilliant Wisdom is shining in the world, but shining forth through you and I in the church. Now, you have to think about this because this means something that you need to be on guard with, on guard against. If God's manifold wisdom is to be displayed through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens, this leads us to believe that the enemy, the enemy's primary tactic in the world, or a major tactic in the world, is to divide God's people is to fracture churches, is to pick off Christians and to convince them that you can be a good Christian without the church, so that you begin to live an isolated, hyper-individualistic life that isn't healthy for you and isn't good for the world, because the world needs to see you and me together. The world needs to see us together, living in harmony, living in unity, pursuing reconciliation in our relationships constantly. The world needs to see that. And the enemy doesn't want the world to see that, so he's constantly deceiving people. Hey, you can be a good Christian and without the church. Just follow Jesus. It's all about you and Jesus anyways. And he'll siphon you off so that your bulb doesn't, isn't added to the rest of the bulbs in the church so that we might shine as bright as we ought. This is one of the enemy's most shrewd tactics. Sometimes in many people's lives, I'm convinced that the enemy is telling people, hey, you got Jesus, you're good, you don't need the church. And he'll even affirm people in their relationship with Jesus if he can affirm them in isolation. And if he can affirm them in their individualism. And when he moves them, when he succeeds, the church's light doesn't shine as bright as it ought. And if we're going to shine in the world that is, we must come together, be together, live together, share worship and service together. We must be the church. 
And we have to dismiss the lie that Jesus died for an individual. Dismiss the lie that Jesus died for an individual only and embrace the reality that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for a person, he died for a people. He didn't just die for an individual, he died for a community. That the mystery of the gospel concerns the unification of the races and all peoples in Christ, in the church. This is why Jesus died. So we embrace that and we champion that and we run into the future with that. Now, I saw a study recently that said 81% of people in this country believe you can be a good Christian without the church. But if you were to take that poll and you were to join Paul in prison in Ephesus while he's writing these words and you were to show it to him, I don't think you would know how to answer it because it would be such a foreign, alien concept. It wouldn't register. What do you mean, be a Christian and not be a part of the church? To be a Christian is to be a part of the church. There's no way around it. It all goes together. And so just the very idea, I can be a good Christian without the church, goes against goes against the deepest reasons why Jesus died. That Jesus died to pull people together in concrete, tangible, flesh and blood relationships. Relationships that start now and extend into eternity. You shouldn't meet a Christian in a real significant way in heaven or before you see them in heaven. Is that right? Heaven shouldn't be the first place you meet a Christian. Heaven shouldn't be the first place where you share life with other Christians. Heaven shouldn't be the first place where you gather with other Christians to worship Jesus. Heaven shouldn't be the first place where you praise Jesus with other people. That starts now. And as we are gathering together to worship, as we're scattering together to serve, as we're engaging this city together, we're shining bright by the grace of God. To be a Christian is to be a part of Church. Vito Mortensen, he played, uh, he was um, unbelievable. My mind is not working tonight. Vito Mortensen played in The Lord of the Rings and he played Aragorn, big character in The Lord of the Rings. And he was reflecting on what he learned from shooting that movie. And listen to what he says. He said, The lesson is the union with others is more significant than your individual existence. That's the lesson he learned from The Lord of the Rings. He says, it doesn't deny the importance of your individual existence. It just means that you are a better person the more you connect with others. That we are better people the more we connect with each other in meaningful, gospel-saturated kinds of ways. So we are empowered by grace to shine as the church. The bottom line is this. The church is not an option for believers. It's really not an option for us. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian. But you also don't have to go home to be married. But if you never go home, do you really think that's going to be good for your marriage? Do you really think that's going to be good for your family? Well, if you're a Christian who's detached from the church, then you never participate in the church. You don't commit yourself to the church, loving the church through thick and thin. Do you really think that's going to be good for you? And do you really think that's going to be good for the rest of Jesus' people in this world? God's grace empowers us to shine 